Welcome back to the Our Voices podcast. I'm Freddie Stewart. This interview with Bhaskar Sankara is the latest in our series of podcasts exploring the most important economic policies and trends influencing the debate in the run-up to the US election in November. For more of our content on the US election, including Our Voices interviews with a range of down-ballot candidates, head to opendemocracy.net forward slash Our Economy. Bhaskar Sankara is the founding editor and publisher of the American quarterly socialist magazine, Jacobin. He is also the vice chair of DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, and a columnist at The Guardian US. He is also the author of the 2019 book, The Socialist Manifesto, The Case for Radical Politics in an Era of Extreme Inequality. Myself and Aaron White met Bhaskar at Jacobin's office in New York and began by asking him why the term democratic socialism has garnered such a resurgence in recent US political discourse. Well, I think the resurgence of socialism obviously has has two different roots. The first is a purely objective route, which is that if you have a system based on the division of people based on extreme inequalities, uh, based on exploitation, if you have capitalism, that's going to yield some sort of uh, dissent. I'm not saying there will definitely be socialism one day, but it is obvious to me there will always be resistance to class society as long as there's class society. So there's that route there. And you have some manifestations of, of discontent in recent years, especially following the crash with Occupy Wall Street, with the Wisconsin uprising, and so on. But the resurgence of democratic socialism as a, as a particular term, well, I think Jacobin can take more credit for maybe 2% of that. But 95% of the credit, 98% of the credit, goes to Bernie Sanders. And that's just a fluke, an accident. I think that maybe we would have had some movement that used the left populist rhetoric of Podemos or something like that instead of these these very traditional kind of old terms, um, if not for, for Sanders. But Sanders just happened to be politicized into a, a very different environment in the 1960s. He joined the youth branch of the Socialist Party of America, um, our Socialist Party that was been uninterrupted since the beginning of the 20th century onward, even though it was quite small by the 1960s, by the time Sanders won. And he eventually moved to a small state where he survived as a third-party independent candidate, still espousing these, these democratic socialist views in an era when those views had, had kind of died out. So he's our, our you know, kind of capsule, time capsule. And he actually is a direct connection to literally the socialist party of Eugene Debs and Norm Thomas. And every single other line had been um, had been cut off. You know, he's... Um, did you know that, that uh, woolly mammoths actually survived up until like 5,000 years ago? There was a dwarfed, co- dwarfed colony of woolly mammoths that survived in a place called Wrigley Island in the Burling um, Strait between Alaska and Siberia. And that's basically Sanders. <laughs> uh, so this is, this is why it survived a bit as more than just a pejorative. Okay, I was wondering if you could speak to the role of movements in recent memory from 2008 to Occupy Wall Street and Bernie Sanders' run in 2016 and even AOC now, and how that has radicalized a whole generation. Well, I think it's worth, I think Occupy Wall Street, for example, is primarily a media event. Like, there, there is lots of people mobilized, but by this, compared to the size of the country, uh, it was not a mass social movement. 
And let's say if when you think about social movements, you think about movements that arose in places like India, even today, or places like Brazil, where you still have active, sustained social movements. You know, these encompass millions of people and, and whatever else. And we never really had that. But what we did have through Occupy Wall Street, which obviously, you know, I was at the encampments and I was a small, you know, uh, part of and Jacobin was just around in our, our infancy then, even though we, we had no role over its development. You know, this this for us was just a sign of discontent and people gravitated towards it as an anti-austerity movement. So uh, regular Americans projected onto it and saw it as a positive thing, a positive dissent. And a lot of the rhetoric, 99%, 1%, and other rhetoric that came out of it, uh, both connected what was happening in the U.S. with what was happening in the Arab Spring, what was happening in Spain and elsewhere, and I think gave people the possibility that politics meant doing something and that we could, in fact, change these things that seem like just completely uh, dispersonalized you know, acts of God, you know, the economy, that, in fact... Uh, the economy was was rooted in in day to day relationships that are structured by governments and and the power of, of workers and that we could we could shape things. So I think that was a real power. Um, but even with these very inspiring movements like Occupy, like Black Lives Matter, and so on, I think sometimes we have the tendency to overstate their importance. And I'm not just saying this because I'm a Sanders partisan, but I think that a lot of the Bernie Sanders quote-unquote movement is literally just a popular candidate with a popular platform who's galvanizing people to vote for, for him and who can attract a lot of volunteers. And I think we need to be aware of that because this thing could easily disappear. And what we've seen with our revolution and these other attempts to institutionalize some of the spirit of the Sanders campaign from 2016 is that our efforts of institutionalizing and keeping alive this energy beyond Bernie, saying this bigger than Bernie, have actually failed pretty absolutely. So you talk about Occupy Wall Street as a sort of mainly successful in terms of a media event, in terms of a spectacle that demonstrates that an alternative society was possible. But could you also talk about the way in which the media has traditionally functioned in the favor of established mm. interests and why that might be? Well, I don't think Occupy demonstrated an alternative society was possible. I think it demonstrated that there was discontent with the status quo because I think that nowhere in the world uh, do people think there's an alternative. If anything, the United States comes among the closest because at least people think there's an austerity uh, alternative to austerity and neoliberalism um but an alternative to capitalism you know that's that's kind of like leaps uh leaps away but you know when it comes to the the media i, I would say that you know i tend to not think that the media just like culture makers their primary role is not mediation but transmission so by that i mean that there are certain um, ruling class uh, ideas. There are certain ideas that are rooted not just kind of in the realm of ideas, but in the, the structure of how the system works. And these ideas are filtered through um, and transmitted through um, the, the media. But the media itself doesn't really create anything, doesn't create necessarily even a, a consensus. So, um, you know, I, I think that there's no doubt that in the United States, we haven't had a lot of avenues for alternative ideas. Um, you know, in the UK, for example, there's been attempts to create actually one big spectacular failed attempt, but many other small attempts to create newspapers and magazines that come from the trade union movement. 
um, in the United States, though, we never really had politicized unions, at least at the scale that we're willing to take to invest in political education, invest in media projects. Um, we tend to have a less partisan news media, which is sometimes better because as much as the media hates Bernie Sanders in the U.S., the print media at least um, does not behave in the same way that the print media would in the U.K., but it also means that we can't... Um, well, the lack of partisanship also reflects the last lack of an actual mass base. There's not a mass base of American workers that want tabloid uh, material telling them how bad the Republicans are, whereas there, up until recently, or maybe there still is, a mass base of British workers who want tabloid material to tell them how nasty the Tories are and the rich are. Um, so I tend to think of the role of Jacobin as a political project, not really a media um, project. And I like to think that the the terrain of struggle is not within the media, within the discourse, but it's actually at the level of our workplaces and our communities. Uh, then the media will start to reflect what's happening in our workplaces and communities, but obviously we need to foster new outlets that um, can both do some of the things the mainstream media does at scale, but also speak to uh, the class interests of, of, of working uh, people. And right now, I think there's a fetishization of alternative media. Like Jacobin, we um, online reach a couple million people. In print, we only reach 50,000 people. But, you know, that's because we're false. We're, it's not because we're alternative. It's because we're just like weak and fairly ineffective given the scale of the country. And how do you see the role of DSA within the space? Obviously, it's grown significantly since Bernie Sanders and even AOC. Um, and how do you see the relationship maybe between, I don't know if you take credit with Jacobin and yeah. DSA or kind of that relationship as well? Well, I mean, Jacobin, um, when Jacobin was started, I think we just had five, 6,000 members. And I think we're both benefiting from the same surge. And I think maybe we could take some credit for DSA getting from 6,000 to 12,000. I think we did a, 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 some of the heavy lifting. But after that, you know, we're just benefiting with the same outside uh, environment. Now, DSA, I think of it as a pre-organization, a pre-party organization, or a pre-movement organization, if anything. So it's attracting a lot of people who are morally committed at an ideological level to democratic socialism. So it's playing a big role, and it's able to influence uh, especially small races with relatively low turnout. DSA is this, this force that hasn't really existed in U.S. politics, and it's, it's really punching above its weight. Um, but it's not really a movement. It's still largely disconnected from a social base. So I think even though a lot of individual members of DSA might be working class, to be a working class organization, you actually have to be more deeply rooted and implanted um, in the working class. And I think that DSA should hopefully be one of the sparks into a much broader, much more eclectic, left egalitarian movement that definitely won't well, at least I think pro probably won't speak in the same exact parlance of socialism or, or Marxist thought, but will embody, I think, a lot of the day-to-day -day class struggle that we'll, we'll need to in, in this country. So I think it's an incredibly positive uh, element. But again, it, it has shades of a bit of this media event. If you were to create a Tea Party-like thing with 60,000 people, it probably wouldn't get this intention. I think the fact that DSA is recruiting from people that were previously kind of left liberal people living in metropolitan centers, disproportionately um, young, uh, some of us relatively photogenic, you know, not, not me, but, you know, uh, you know, so it's like people in their, their, their 20s and 30s. It, it kind of uh, opens a door to pro, pro profiles. And to be honest, like 
liberal journalists have for all the clashes between liberals and leftists on Twitter, the coverage of DSA has been kind of kid glove, you know, uh, coverage. Same with a lot of the coverage of Jacobin. So um, I think we just have to be a, be aware of the risk of creating a very large niche or a very large subculture um, instead of uh, actually breaking out and being able to uh, influence uh, politics at a national level. Uh, we actually went to a DSA meeting last week in Lower Manhattan, and one of the things that I thought was particularly interesting, obviously the organization was fascinating from the, p- the point of view that they were discussing which of the candidates in New York State that they were going to back, which people they were going to go knock doors for, but they were also focusing a lot on... Uh, both local politics um, at the local level, but also on political education. And we were talking on, on our way here that we saw you speak at The World Transformed two years ago uh, in the United Kingdom. Um, and for those who don't know, that's a sort of a festival that operates alongside the Labour Conference um, by some of the fringe so sort of left movements that try and get together and organise political education in the UK. I was wondering if, if you could speak to um, whether you think there are any similar sort of events that happen here in the U.S., whether you think there's a space for that, and how you think DSA is doing in terms of political education. Yeah, I mean, I think that one problem that we face in the United States is we don't have the same culture of fringes, and we don't have the same unifying big event as a Labor Party conference. You know, our uh, Democratic National Committee is like uh, convention is really nothing, nothing uh, like that. And obviously, the U.K. is also a place with the with a deep. Um, legacy of a highly politicized uh, workers' movement and a pretty bad workers' party. And that combination led to, like, you know, a very interesting dynamic, both intellectually and otherwise, whereas the U.S. is largely a country without a left. Of course, we could point to certain figures and certain things because we have a continent. We have 330 million people. Of course, I could name you a handful of prominent U.S. leftists throughout history or events or things like that. But uh, we're basically starting the vacuum of that. And also, we're starting in uh, a broader culture that is like less theoretical and less prone to having these debates. Sometimes it's positive. Like, I uh, despise my debates with British Trotskyists, you know, about, you know, whatever, like state capitalism versus bureaucratic collectivism. And what the bureaucratic collectivism as a term was first invented by an American, you know, Max Shackman. But, you know, it's like these kind of things, uh, it's a different, it's a different culture, it's a different environment. So, DSA, I think, um, is playing some role into saying that we have these 60,000 people. And if we were a mass membership organization trying to change the world with just these 60,000 people, we'd be absolutely impotent. But if we train these people into cadre, if the effects of them being at a satellite caucus in Iowa or organizing on the shop floor somewhere, like that might have a multiplier effect. Like these are, in fact, I think, if we think of ourselves that way, then actually sixty thousand people is plenty to to at least like start the the sparks to grow into a, you know a fire across the across the country. But um, in terms of like in the in the perspective of the election of Donald Trump and the support mm-hmm. that Bernie Sanders is managing to garner at the moment, do you sense the appetite for something like that to be on a much broader scale? Um. No, I think that that um, actually the mass base of Sandersism, unfortunately, really wants Bernie Sanders to get elected, and they hope that he'll be able to improve their their lives through executive order, through his the bully pulpit of the presidency, through pushing in Congress Medicare for all. So I, I think that for the mainstream of the mass movement around Sanders, and I think it is a mass movement, it is almost a left populist movement, even though Sanders himself is not a 
populist in classical terms is, is much you know more like a social democrat or a democratic you know socialist um but i think that the two most likely outcomes is and that the, the general slant of things is towards either uh saying okay hopefully the leader will take care of it and the good virtuous leader and the people around him will take care of it on the one hand if things go really well or if things go poorly i think there might be uh, a bout of apathy and depolitization and we have to be pretty careful because the 60,000 DSA members could become 100,000 members almost overnight if this happens if Sanders loses or especially if he gets the something stolen from him in a contested convention but we still might be in a worse position to advance our politics because we would lost a lot of our mass base will be demobilized and, and defeated. Um, so that brings us on into like Justice Democrats and how the Democrats are now trying to challenge um, the entrenched incumbents, and that's kind of the role in reshaping the party. Can you speak a bit to the role that the Justice Democrats have played, obviously in 2018, but now this year in down ballot races? Yeah, I mean, one, uh, the Justice Democrats, I think, are the most powerful proponents of the realignment strategy, which is just the strategy to turn the Democratic Party into something more approximating a social democratic party. Um, they run a bunch of candidates. Um, they've had a bunch of high-profile high success. They don't have a large grassroots base. So their particular campaigns will be able to rally people, volunteers, and whatnot. But the Justice Democrats don't have a membership like DSA. Instead, it's a much more closely coordinated and much more professional and you know, good in bad ways um, you know, push to like focus. The focus is on communication strategies and candidate selection and use of the media and whatnot. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm hugely, uh, that sounds negative. I was just trying to be analytic, but I'm a hugely supportive of the effort. I think ultimately they'll find that it's going to be very difficult to turn the Democratic Party into a, um, you know, the type of party they want the Democratic Party to be. But I think they deserve, not us in DSA, the lion's share of the credit for AOC and for some of these other really inspiring races that we ironically have been getting the credit just because democratic socialists and they, they identify as democratic socialists and it's such an unusual thing that the media is picking up on this ideological label but a lot of the um infrastructure let's say it's like campaign strategy and campaign selection was all just democrats dsa and what we've been providing is more uh people to knock on doors and canvas for them we've been the kind of the mass space for in those those efforts but um it's hugely promising it is a little bit different than maybe what it might seem from the outside. It's not like momentum or even like the Tea Party in the U.S., which is like kind of this messy, eclectic, you know, thing. Uh, this is like a much more coordinated and targeted effort. Uh, just finally, a lot of the work you do at Jacobin um, focuses on internationalism. And obviously, we know that you purchased Tribune. I wondered if you could speak to a little bit how you feel that Jacobin is being received in terms of an international audience. And why did you buy Tribune? Why do you think it's uh, important to build up that message overseas? Well, I think with Tribune, it was just um, kind of a defunct and derelict, um, you know, publication that we thought had important historical value. But we don't consider ourselves a U.S. publication. I mean, just by accident of the language we publish in, we're an Anglophone publication. Uh, we're committed to the socialist movement. Um, and uh, hopefully one day we're all speaking Esperanto and those red flags, you know, uh, all the national flags are replaced by, you know, red flags. Um, but roughly 40% of our audience is international. Less of our paid subscribers are international just because of the cost of shipping. Um, we especially have a, uh, actually London is our largest city in traffic. It's higher than, than New York. I think per capita it's about even or New York, maybe a little bit higher because we're a smaller city. Um, but you know, all this means that we don't try to publish pieces like other 
publications do when we're covering international coverage. So often you'll read a piece, a piece in a center left publication in the in the U.S., like a place like The Nation or or you know New Republic or something, and the spirit of it will be like, how could we have an American Podemos? How could we have a American Syriza or whatever the, the flavor of the month is? Whereas when we try to cover these countries, we have people in those countries from those contexts writing about them. And our goal isn't to inform U.S. audiences, but rather to participate in conversation or debate. Um, so often that means that we don't really think about things through the pure market logic when it comes to those those. Um, decisions you know um we publish a lot in spanish politics for instance that require journalists in spain translations like a lot of extra headaches but um it's serving a unique role and then obviously it's useful for us because we have this international audience and i think prestige that we wouldn't otherwise have if we were just this u.s bernie kratt um publication but the most important thing uh for me is to think about the jackman project in terms of um decades instead of just uh, months and years and if you're thinking in terms of decades then you have to think that unless you have a wider framework uh, way of looking at things then i think you're gonna just burn yourself out and you're going to be able to live or die with any um any new wave of inspiration other than crushing defeat or betrayal or disappointment however this is uh, phrased so i think this is where our old kind of status is a Marxist journal masquerading as a uh, popular magazine uh, comes in. And a lot of our international coverage is just that, you know, we just have contributors overseas and we try to give them jobs as we can afford it. And we try to, you know, produce content there. Thank you for listening to this Our Voices podcast from Open Democracy. If you enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen, head to iTunes, subscribe and leave us a review. Open Democracy is an independent global media platform that is only possible because of your kind donations. To find out more or to make a donation, head to opendemocracy.net.